Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. Today, we are going to finish and wrap up our series together. And I don't know about you, but I hope this series has been helpful, inspirational, and motivational for you as it has been for me, especially as we've talked about what the church is, how we're supposed to function in the church, and how we're supposed to work together. And so as we've gone through the series, we started way back about eight weeks ago, and we began by talking about the truth of togetherness. And the truth was this, is that we all that those of us that are believers, every single one of us, were part of the body of Christ. That means we all have value, we all have purpose, and we are all needed in the body of Christ. And then we began to look at some things that threaten this, this togetherness that we have, this design of being together that God has for us. And so we've talked about conflict. We talked about the lack of boundaries. And then if you remember, probably many of your favorite weeks was that week we talked about the beauty of togetherness. When we heard Tyler Peck's story about how God had changed his life, and we were reminded this is the beauty of togetherness, that every single one of you have a story. If you are a follower of Christ, you've got a story, and that story is worth knowing, and that story is worth sharing. And then the week after that, we talked about the glue of togetherness, and the glue is love. Paul, G, James said it this way, let your love be genuine. And we talked about that. And then last week we talked about God's design for togetherness. And God's design is found best in the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed this, that we may be one as he and the Father are one. That God's design of togetherness is that we are not only one because of Christ, but we live as one body, one mission, one motive, one message, and that message is the love of God. And so today, I thought the only way we could effectively wrap up this series is by coming to that place where we celebrate the very thing that unites us as one, the very thing that brings us together, the very thing that makes us one, and that is the cross of Christ. And so today, we are going to come to the Lord's Supper. But before we do, I want to look at a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul addresses the Lord's Supper, and not just addresses the supper, but he addresses some issues that are going on in the church of Corinth. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where I want you to turn. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning, and the passage I'm going to read is fairly lengthy, so we're just going to read it in sections, so there's no need for you to stand as I get ready to read God's Word. Let's start by reading chapter 11, verse 17 through verse 19. Here's what the Word of God says. But in the following instructions, this is Paul talking, I do not commend you, but when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, out of the gate here, here's what Paul is doing. Paul is like, he's in full rebuke mode right now. I mean, if you know anything about the church of Corinth, they were pretty much a messed up church, right? I mean, they had a lot of issues going on. They had incest in the church. They had favoritism in the church. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. There. If you've never, look, if you want to know like a modern day version of what the church, you know, the modern culture, like all the stuff we deal with, go read the book of 1 Corinthians. These guys were all messed up. And so you find Paul in many cases rebuking the church of the first of the church of Corinth, telling them things they're doing wrong. And this is another case of that. So he's in full rebuke mode. Now, if you notice, there's an issue that he's addressing, and it has the idea of this issue of coming together. He says, the issue that you have as a church is when you come together. Now, here's where that's important for us, because the first century church came together a lot. They were around each other 
a lot. In fact, when they would come together, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes when they'd come together, they must have been Baptists because they always had a what? Anybody know? A meal. That's right. Some of you Baptists got that one. All right. So they must have had a meal because we know in Acts chapter 2, there was the breaking of bread. They came together. And so oftentimes there was a meal. But what we also need to know about the first century church is when they would come together, yes, there was this common meal, but oftentimes they would add on the end of that meal, the observance of the Lord's Supper, the taking of communion. Now, this idea of having a common meal and tagging on at the end, the Lord's Supper, was known as an agape feast or a love feast. Now, any of you that were alive in the 60s and 70s, that's not what I'm talking about, all right? Not that kind of love feast. It was they would come together, and this idea of love feast was we have a common meal, but then we take time and we honor and we observe the Lord's Supper. And a good reference for that, if you're like, where'd you get that? Jude chapter 1, because only one chapter, verse 12, he talks about these love Feast and agape feast. So the first century church came together. And Paul says, when you come together, here's what I've been told. That there's divisions among you. In other words, there's some dissension that's going on among you. And there's some discrimination that's going on among you. So when you come together, instead of it being a time of real koinonia fellowship, instead of when you come together, it being a really amazing time of worship, instead when you come together, it's all about self-indulgence. When you come together, it's all about disputes. And disagreement. And so Paul's like in full rebuke mode because he's like, I am about to write something to you and I'm not commending you. So if he says I'm not commending you, what's the opposite of that? I'm condemning you, right? I'm condemning what you're doing right now. And so Paul addresses this idea of the coming together, this common meal and this Lord's Supper, and he does it by addressing four different things. And the first thing he addresses is found in verse 20 through 22. Look with me as I read. He says this in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? You know, have, you, have you ever been frustrated with, your, with somebody, maybe your kids, maybe your spouse, and you're like, and you're like, what? I mean, you're like so frustrated. You're like, I don't know what to say. So I'm like, are you kidding me? That's basically what Paul's saying. Are you kidding me? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you just, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will what? Not. I'm not going to do it. Now, when you read this, here's what Paul addresses first. He addresses discrimination in the Lord's Supper. The first thing I want you to write down, it's on the screen. He addresses discrimination in the Lord's Supper. Now, this idea that they are fractured and that they are divisive. Look, go back to verse 20. Look what he says here. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. So he says, when you come together and you have this, this common meal and you partake of the supper, you're not really partaking of the supper. You think you're taking the supper, but what you're doing is not absorbing, observing the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is just, you're treating it casually. There's no reverence in it for you. There's nothing that you're paying attention to the nature of it. You're just eating a continuation of a meal. Paul is saying, listen, I, I want you to know that you may be taking the elements of the supper, but there is no heart behind what you're doing. Listen to me. This is pretty, I mean, like Paul's pointing a finger at them as he's writing this going, listen, you come together and you're taking the supper, but what you're doing is not taking the supper. 
Now, if you're the first century church and you understand that one of the most important ordinances that the first century church was given outside of baptism was the observance of the Lord's Supper, Paul is like totally condemning their actions. Like you may gather together and you may take of the bread and you may take of the wine, but I'm just telling you the way you're treating it, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. You're just eating a big old meal and you're adding on to it at the end. And then in verse 21, he gets a little harsher with the finger pointing. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead of his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Now, here's what he's saying. He said, when you come together, all of you come together, you're discriminating against one another. Now, what he's talking about here in this particular verse is the common meal. The common meal said, when you come together, before you even get to the Lord's Supper, when you come together, there is no sense of community among you. There's no sense of togetherness. The wealthy always eat first, and so that's what you're doing. And the poor eat last. And what the wealthy were doing is they were gorging themselves and they were getting drunk, according to Apostle Paul. And that means the, 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 those that were poor that showed up, they weren't getting anything to eat. And Paul's like, look, what are you doing here? Now, you say, well, Doug, that's pretty cool. Well, listen, here's why it's even worse than what you think is because that's what culture did. And this day in culture, if you were coming to a meal and you were wealthy, you always ate first. And you always could eat and drink as much as you want first. And if there was any left over, the poor people, the ostracized, the marginalized people, then they could get what was left over. And oftentimes, there was nothing left over. So they had taken a worldly, cultural kind of discrimination issue, and they had brought it into the church. Are you with me on that church? you understand that? They brought it into the church. And so Paul said, listen. When you come together, you're discriminating against one another. There's some that are gorging themselves and getting drunk, and others are left out. When people come together in the body of Christ, while that should have been such a picture of unity, rather it's a picture of discord. Now you can imagine, if they were doing that in the common meal, how much more were they doing that in the observance of the Lord's Supper? Right? And then look what he says in verse 22. I love this. Paul just pulls no punches. What? Like, what are you thinking? Do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? In other words, when you let the, uh, those that are poor go hungry and you don't bring them in and share in the common meal and treat them respectfully as we take the Lord's Supper, you are humiliating them. You're humiliating them. And when you humiliate them, why are you doing that? Is it because you hate the church? I mean, he's like after them. And then he says this, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? This I will not do. I'm not going to commend you. I'm speaking against you. What you are doing is wrong. Now, here's why that is so important for us. It's because they took a cultural issue, a thing in the culture that was discriminating against those that were the, the less thans, and they brought the same ideology into the church. And Paul calls them out. He says, listen, when you come together for these agape feasts, these love feasts, there should be a meal where everybody shares it, and at the end there should be this Lord's Supper, we celebrate it, and you've made it none of that. You've made it a buffet for the wealthy, and you've ostracized the poor and left them hungry. And if you're doing it in the meal, I know you're doing it in the supper. You are mistreating, abusing, and defiling the Lord's Supper, is basically what Paul's saying. So he addresses first the discrimination that's going on in the church, and the second thing he addresses is found in verses 22 through 25. Now, just before we read that, let me, let me say something. Once again, if I was the Apostle Paul, 
I would follow my train of thought on the condemnation side of things, right? I'd be like, now I'm going to pronounce judgment on you, right? Anybody else like that? Like, you so screwed this up. Let me give you a litany of the ways that I pray that God is going to judge you, chastise you, and bring you back to where you ought to be. I mean, I would find great joy in being able to do that, wouldn't you? Yes, you would love, some of you are like, no, I'm too spiritual. No, you're not. No, you're not. You would do it too. You would love to pronounce judgment. Paul doesn't do that. Paul lays all his cards on the table and says, listen, there's some real discrimination going on in the church of Corinth, especially as it resolves around this common meal and the Lord's Supper. And he has a couple ways he could go here. One way could be like continuing in this idea of condemnation, or he could bring them back to the basics. Hey, you've gone so far astray, let me bring you back. Let me, let me, let me put it back on your radar what this thing really is all about. Now, for most of us, which way would we go? Condemnation. I want, to, I want to speak judgment. I want to see God bring fire from heaven, and you go through whatever God's going to bring. No, no, no. That's not what Paul does. Look what Paul does, beginning of verse 22, or verse 23. He says this, For I, what I've received from the Lord is what I also deliver to you, that, on the, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, when he took, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's what Paul does. Instead of condemning them, Paul gives them the purpose of the Lord's Supper. So he started with the discrimination in the Lord's Supper. Now he's going to give them the purpose of the Lord's Supper. He reminds them of the basic truths of the Lord's Supper. And the first thing he tells them is, the Lord's Supper is a time of remembering. Right? This is a time of remembering. You with me on that church? Say amen. It's a time of remembering. Now, obviously, in the context we're reading, it's remembering what Christ has done for us. But if you were a first century Christian in the church of Corinth, you were most likely Jewish before, and you're a Jewish Christian now. And so part of that remembering would have also taken them back to remembering the original Passover meal. The original Passover service. Now, remembering the original Passover wasn't a bad thing because the original Passover meal was all about how God delivered his people. Do you remember Passover, right? That the Israel's in Egypt and then God sends how many plagues? Okay, not a trick question. Ten plagues. And the last plague is that you've got to kill this animal and he gives all these details to do. And you've got to put blood over the, the doorposts and the sides of the door. And the death angel is going to come. And if you've not done that, you're going to lose the firstborn and the death angel is going to come. And if you put that on your door and your doorpost, what's going to happen? The death angel is going to pass over you. And that became an annual celebration for the nation of Israel, remembering how God had delivered them. So part of this remembering for these Church in Corinth is remembering how God had always delivered them. Going all the way back to their ancestors in Egypt, God was a God of deliverance. Now, this Passover meal that they would have thought about really focused on, just quickly so you know, focused on four cups. There were four cups associated with this Passover meal. The first cup was the cup of blessing. And it really was a cup when they took it, they would be remembering and talking about the blood of the Passover in Egypt, the blood of the lambs that were spilled at the homes that was put on the doorposts while they were in Egypt. They would have thought about that moment. The second cup would come later in the meal, and it would come after the, the, the patriarch of the family got up and broke the matzo bread, and then they would dip the matzo bread into bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitterness of being in slavery, and then they would have taken the second cup. The third cup came after the meal. 
And the third cup was that, that cup they took and celebrating how God had delivered Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And then later, after the meal, like way after the meal, they would have come to a fourth cup. And the fourth cup centered around the coming kingdom. That one day the kingdom is coming. One day the Messiah is coming. And then they would sing a hymn, and that was the end of the meal. My point is this, is that when he calls them to remember, he wanted them to know that the purpose of the Lord's Supper, it is a time of remembering. Remember how God had always been faithful. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Because you're wondering, God, why are you doing this? God, why is this happening to me? God, what's going on? Listen, God is always faithful. You need to let truth trump feeling. You need to let truth trump the facts. You need to be able to look at your life and go, God has always been faithful. Can anybody say amen to that? Amen. I know some of you, sometimes you don't feel it. Sometimes you can't, you can't buy into it, but it doesn't change the truth that he is. And so it's a time of remembrance. When he calls them to remember, it's a time of remembering that God is always faithful. But it's also a time for those Christians and us as well. It's a time of reframing. Here's what I mean. Reframing the Lord's Supper, realizing this. There is a shift that happens from celebrating Passover to the Lord's Supper. What I mean is there's a moment that there was a shift for them and a shift for us where it's not celebrating a lamb that was sacrificed, but celebrating the lamb that was sacrificed. So here's what you need to know. The reason I talked about four cups is because Jesus on the last night with his disciples, John 13 through 17, you can read it later. Matthew has an account. Luke has an account. When Jesus spends those last moments with his disciples, it's between right before the second cup and right at the third cup, Jesus would have taken the story of Passover and he would have shifted the narrative. And in shifting the narrative, what he's shifting is this notion that, listen, it's no longer about a Passover lamb, it's about me. It's still about the deliverance of God, but now I am the deliverer for my people. It's through my sacrifice and my bloodshed that's going to bring forgiveness of sin and going to bring the hope of salvation. So while we celebrate the lambs that were sacrificed, now it's about to be about this lamb that's going to be sacrificed. So when Jesus would have taken the second cup, and he, or taken the bread and broke it, it says that he gave thanks and then he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, this is my body, and often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, it's no longer about bread from Egypt. It's no longer about making bread that have no yeast in it so you can quickly get out of it. It's no longer about the bread of Egypt. It's about my body that I'm going to sacrifice for you. Listen, let me put it this way. My body that I'm willingly going to sacrifice for you. Now, I know many of you have seen the movie, The Passion of Christ. And if you've ever watched the movie, would you agree that there's an, there's an element of just real overwhelmingness when you start thinking about the body that was sacrificed for you? Anybody with me on that one? But can we also agree with this? That movie can't even come close to what Jesus really went through. When scripture tells us that he was beaten almost beyond the point of recognition. I've never seen anybody like that. Have you? I don't know what that looks like. But I know Hollywood can't cap you know, capture it. I know that we can't envision it in our own mind. But to think about that this is what Jesus did. As he broke that, as he gave thanks for the bread and he broke it. And the disciples are thinking, we're about to get a traditional Jewish blessing with a God. We're about to take a traditional Jewish meal with this bread. And all of a sudden, Jesus pivots the meal and goes, oh, by the way, this is no longer about bread of Egypt. This is my body that I'm going to willingly sacrifice 
for you. Do you think there was a pin drop moment in the room if you were the disciples going, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not like every other Passover meal we've taken. Jesus, you're saying that this bread now is a picture of your body that's going to be beaten, bruised, battered, and sacrificed? That's exactly what I'm saying. And I just want you to know this morning, there should be something in us that is overwhelmed by the price that Jesus is willing to pay for us. There should be something in us when we think about the, the cat of nine tails and the lashes that he took and the blood that was spilled for us. There should be something about us when we think about the body that was beaten, the ridicule, the rebuke, the, all those kinds of things we know that happen. There should be something about it that goes, you mean you love me that much that you are willing to sacrifice your body for me? Are you sure? Yes, exactly. I'm willing to do it because you know why? I love you. Not about you. I love all of you. But I would not give any of my boys up for any of you. Would you? Would you give up your kids for somebody else? No. I love you. But at some point, my love's conditional. Because I'm not giving my son. The father gave his one and only son to sacrifice his body. So when Jesus had this, this, this bread and broke it, he said, listen, by the way, this is no longer the bread of Egypt. This is a picture of my body, which I'm sacrificing willingly. For you, And then as he took the third cup, he would have taken the cup and he would have said, okay, listen, this cup, now what does it represent? It represents, how they, he would have normally said how it represents how God had delivered Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. But instead he says, this cup is a new covenant of my blood which is being poured out. Take it, drink it, and do it in remembrance of me. Once again, a pin drop moment. I go, well, wait a minute. This cup has always represented Jesus, how God delivered Israel from Egypt. But now you're saying this cup represents how you're going to deliver us from sin, death, and the grave? Yes. This cup is about a new covenant. See, the old covenant was wrapped around in the sacrifice of animals. And here's the problem with that. Animals had to be sacrificed over and over and over and over again. Are you with me on that? But this new covenant is about a sacrifice of Jesus that is once and for all. One time, one shedding of his blood, and forgiveness is for everyone. And so Jesus would have taken that cup and he would have said, listen, this cup now is a picture of my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. And listen, he says this, Paul says, he quotes Jesus and he says, as often as you eat and as often as you drink, do it in what? Remembrance of me. Now I know what some of you are thinking, Pastor Doug, you're, you're belaboring the point. I know on purpose. Because I want us as a body today to remember the price that was paid for us. Listen, I, I say this a lot, but I mean it. I pray that today when you think about the body that was sacrificed and the blood that was shed, that you don't, go, that, that you don't get over that. That when you leave here in a few moments, you're going to be overwhelmed with how much God loves you. Because listen, isn't there times in the day, isn't there times in life where we feel unloved, uncared about, ostracized, isolated, and alone? And this reminds us we're never alone. He loves us so much, he gave the greatest gift that he could ever give, and that was his son. And we need to think about the body that was sacrificed and the blood that was shed. Because without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there can be no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus was that sacrifice. So the time, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is a time of remembering. It's also a time of reframing that it's not about bread and not about animals. It's about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But it's also a time of proclaiming. Did you pick up on what Paul said in verse 26? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until 
he comes. In other words, when we take the supper in a moment, we are proclaiming our sinfulness. Anybody in the room besides Tyler that's not sinful? Anybody that's not sinful? Liar. Okay, so we know we are, right? Listen, when we take of the bread and we take of the body, what are we proclaiming? Our love for the Lord. Yes, 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 I know that. But you're proclaiming that you were dead in your sin and that you needed a Savior and that Jesus took your place. There's a really big theological word called propitiation, and you probably shouldn't say it out loud very often, but it's propitiation, and it literally means Jesus instead of us. He was, he was our substitutionary atonement. He took our place on the cross, and he paid our debt. And so when we take the supper, yes, it's a time of remembering. Yes, it's a time of reframing that's all about Jesus, but it's also a time of proclaiming that I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I'm sinful, and that I need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. And then the third thing he begins to address after he talks about the purpose of Lord's Supper, the third thing is the preparation to take the Lord's Supper. Look at me in verse 24 through 25 again. He says this, and when you give thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup and after the supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. One of the first things that we have to do in preparation for the Lord's Supper is to remember. Remember the sacrifice of the body. Remember the blood that was shed. But it's not only about remembering his sacrifice, it's also about examination. Skip down to verse 27. Look what it says. Whoever therefore, Paul says, who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, Paul says, listen, before you come to the supper, Yes, it's a time of remembering, but it's going to be a time of examination of your own heart. You have to examine yourself. What does that mean, Doug? Well, that means I need to look inward and start examining my motives in life. What drives me in life? I need to look at my behaviors. How am I living life? I need to examine my attitudes, my thoughts. I need to take a hard look and, and see where is the sin? You know how David said, Lord, search me and know me. You know, show me any offensive way in me. That's what examination is. It's getting before the Lord and saying, Lord, would you just pinpoint all the sin that's in my life? Would you call out my bad attitudes? Would you call out my, my wrong behavior? Lord, would you call out my wrong motives? Lord, would you reveal all those things to me? Now listen, here's why we don't like examination. Because it hurts, doesn't it? Come on. If we really look into the depths of our own spiritual lives, some of us would have to be confronted with some sin that we've not dealt with. And part of examination is going, okay, Lord, now expose it, but now I need to deal with it. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story of Joshua and Jericho. I love that story. I wish they'd make a movie on it. I mean, I would love to have been there because when they went around the city the seventh time, only to let out a shout and a trumpet sound. I would love the people in Jericho probably laughing at the Israelites going, you mean a trumpet sound and a shout is going to bring this city down? How foolish are you? And I would love to have seen the first pebble come off the top of that wall and then to see it come crashing down. But you know what? After that story, there's another story. Story of AI. We don't talk about it much. It's a small town, probably about the size of Chuliota. It's not very big. 
about the population truly, not very many people, not compared to Jericho, like going downtown Orlando, but it was, it was small. And when Israel goes to take Ai, they lose the battle. Like they lose, they like run for their lives is how bad they lose the battle. And you know why they lost the battle? Because Joshua goes back and Joshua does what we all do when things don't happen our way. He whines to the Lord. He complains to the Lord. And, and God reveals something to Joshua. He's already reveals. You know, you know why you lost the battle, Joshua? No, why, Lord? Because there's sin in your camp. There's somebody that didn't honor what I said to do, and you've got sin in your camp. And until you deal with the sin in your camp, Joshua, you're never going to win the battle. And that guy's name was Achan, by the way. And they dealt with Achan. What I'm saying is if we're going to come to the supper today and we're truly going to take it and honor and have the right reverence for taking of the body and the blood, the picture of the body and the blood, we need to make sure there's no sin in our camp. See, here's what Paul says. If we don't do that, if we don't examine ourselves and don't look inward, guess what? We run the risk of taking the supper in an unworthy manner. It means we end up taking it with an unrepentant heart. We take it irreverently. We take it carelessly. And if we take it that way, there are some serious consequences to taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Look what Paul says in verse 30 through 32. He says this. He says, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, Paul says this in verse 29. When you take the supper in an unworthy manner, you're bringing judgment on yourselves. He's like, for some of you, the reason some have died and the reason some are sick is because God has allowed it because you have defamed the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty harsh, isn't it? But also, doesn't that show us how much the Lord values us honoring the sacrifice his son has made. Doesn't that show you the value of how serious we should take a body that was sacrificed for us and blood that was shed? And Paul also says that if you will truly examine yourselves and make a commitment to work on that sin in your life, when you take it, you won't be disciplined, but rather will be blessed. And then Paul has one more thing he addresses to the church, and it's this. He, addresses, he gives a challenge related to the Lord's Supper. And let's end the passage, verse 33, he says this. So when my, then my brothers, when you come together, <laughs> stop for a minute. So if you're the church of Corinth and you're reading this letter out loud, are you offended by Paul's words? Come on, are you offended? So I don't know. Are you offended by his words? Yeah, I'm pretty ticked off by his words, right? Because he starts with, you're doing something and I'm not going to commend you on it. And then he goes back into saying, listen, now I'm not going to commend you on it. I'm, I'm really rebuking you in what I'm doing here. And listen, you've missed the whole mark. So let me go back to the basics. Here's the purpose, Lord's Supper. Here's how you prepare for the Lord's Supper. And then here's the challenge. He says, now once you come together, now that you've got the basics figured out again, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will be not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. In other words, when you come together, let there be no fractions among you. Let there be no discrimination among you. Let's make this agape feast what it's supposed to be. Yes, a time of fellowship meal, but also about this. Because this is what unites us. It is the remembering of the Lord's Supper of what Jesus did by sacrificing his body and shedding his blood that brings us together. So when you come together, Paul says, here's the challenge. Wait on one another. Don't discriminate. Don't ostracize. Because when you come to the table and you come to the cross, we are all equal. Amen? Now here's where that's important this morning before we come to the table. 
Because for some of us in the room today, maybe for the first time in your life, you've clearly heard how much God loves you. You've clearly heard how much he loves you. He was, his only son was willing to sacrifice his body and shed his blood just so that you can have the forgiveness of God and the hope of eternity. And maybe you've never received that. Maybe you've, you, yeah, you grew up in church, yeah, you've gone to church, yeah, you've played the game, maybe you've even walked an aisle at some point and thought you made a decision, but you know today that if death was a knock on your door, you're not sure that you'd spend forever in heaven. Today, you can know that. Today, before we come to the Lord's table, you can go, you know what, Jesus, I understand and I believe that you sacrificed your body. I believe and understand that you shed your blood for me. And I believe and understand that you love me that much. And today I want to surrender my life to you. Man, if you want to do that this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. But then for the rest of us in the room, man, we're believers and we love the Lord. Listen, when we come to the table, we need to make sure that we spend time examining our hearts. We need to make sure that we say, Lord, expose the sin that's in my life. And then we need to make a commitment to deal with that sin today before we come to the supper. There needs to be repentance in our heart. There needs to be a moment of going, Lord, I need your strength to make it through it. If I'm going to change this, I can't do it on my own. I got myself into my own mess. I need your help and your wisdom and your way to do it. And so for followers of Jesus, listen, please don't take this casually. Please don't take this irreverent. But let's come to the table together. Let's come to the table examining our own lives in our own hearts. And here's how we're going to do that this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask you, you can stand and sing if you want to. You can stay seated. We're going to have uh, Don and Terry are going to be over here, and, and Pat and Willie are going to be over here. And if you just need somebody to pray for you, like we've been doing the last few weeks, just step out on those sides. They'd love to pray for you. Maybe you want to take your family with you. Go, you know what? Hey, we're struggling through some stuff. I'm going to take my whole family because we need prayer. Listen, there's power when you have godly people praying for you. There's power in that. And so maybe you just need to slide to the side and say, would you pray for me or would you pray for my family? Or if you want to come to this altar, whatever it takes, I want Want each one of us to take some time to examine our own hearts. And then after we sing the song and then we examine, then we will come to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. God, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for what Paul tells this church, a church that had so messed up the Lord's Supper, a, a church that had so defiled the Lord's Supper, Lord. I, I thank you for what Paul said, that he reminds them of the purpose. Lord, we need to be reminded of the purpose, that coming to the supper is about remembering the body that was sacrificed and the blood that was shed for us. It's a time of proclaiming our own sinfulness and our gratitude that Jesus took our place. But God, before we can do that, we need to be prepared in our hearts. We need to examine, as Paul says, our own lives. We need to make sure there's no sin in our camp so that when we come to the table and we take the supper, we can take it in a way that is reverent, a way that is honoring and pleasing to you, Lord. So God, right now, all across the room, I pray that we begin to examine. Whether that happens through standing and singing, whether that happens through sitting in our chair and contemplating, whether that happens at the altar, or whether that happens seeking prayer on the wings of this, this worship space, whatever that means, Lord. And God, maybe that person today that needs to accept your Savior, they need to slide to one of these people on the wing and say, would you tell me what it means to know Christ? God, however you want to move today, your Holy Spirit, would he just have freedom? Freedom to convict freedom to challenge us, but most importantly, Lord,
freedom to change us from the inside out. So God, be with us during this time of examination. May you reveal into our lives and our hearts the sin that is there. And may we adequately do business with you. For it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, Don Terry, if you guys will slide that way, and Pat and William slide over here. If you want to stand and sing, stand and sing. If you need to stay seated and consider and contemplate, do that. If you want to come to the altar, do it. If you want to go seek prayer, however the Lord is leading you, would you just be faithful to obey and to respond? As Patrick leads us, let's take some time and examine our hearts.